Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Houston, Texas. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, November 14th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Google recently got its hands on detailed health data on millions of patients, and no one asked the patient's permission. We'll discuss the implications of big tech's latest foray into medicine. Next, there's a new DNA test that claims to grade IVF embryos based on desirable genetic traits. Are designer babies cool, or are we moving dangerously close to Gattaca-style eugenics? Dr. David Sable, an expert in reproductive medicine, joins us to discuss. The schism between tech people and biotech people is a trope we've talked about before, and one that both parties usually downplay. But recently, it spilled out in public. Andreessen Horowitz VC Jorge Conde joins us to talk about his experience getting dunked on on Twitter. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. How would you feel if you found out that your healthcare provider had shared extensive medical data with Google without asking you? Google's new data sharing deal with the second largest health system in the country is raising some privacy concerns after the Wall Street Journal first reported the partnership. The project, codenamed Nightingale, is reportedly collecting the data of around 50 million patients, or a little less than one in six Americans. For more, I'm joined by... That was a reality this week for millions of patients of the hospital chain Ascension. This week, the Wall Street Journal broke the story of Project Nightingale. That is a partnership between Google and Ascension that gave the tech company access to detailed patient data, all without the consent of either patients or doctors. And so this whole story feels almost engineered to touch on all the major themes of big tech in 2019. You've got secret deal making, concerns about privacy, data security, and then, of course, an arguably monopolistic company further extending its power. So, Rebecca, you've been covering this story and the broader story of tech embracing healthcare. Why do you think the Project Nightingale news sparked such a negative reaction? Well, let's start with the name of the initiative, Project Nightingale. It sounds so sinister. It sounds straight out of a spy thriller. I do think in general, this news sparked such a reaction because of the secrecy around it. These sorts of deals happen all the time where a healthcare provider will hand over information to a tech giant for improving clinical care. But these are packaged as press releases. Uh, They're framed as much more public than the kind of secret, quiet work being done here. So in the U.S., there's a law called HIPAA, which is meant to protect patient health information. Who gets access to it and who doesn't? Is this Google Ascension alignment legal? So when this news first broke, everyone thought it was legal. It seemed to be. Uh, The company and the health system defended it as legal. Even the Wall Street Journal's privacy experts that they quoted said it all sounded legal. But then it seemed maybe it's not. A federal regulator, that's the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, said it would be investigating the matter uh, to see if it actually followed HIPAA. And the issue here seems to lie in the purpose of this work. 
So HIPAA allows a covered entity, which is the health system here, to work with what's called a business associate, that's Google here. Uh, But they can only do that when the business associate is helping the covered entity carry out its healthcare functions. So it's going to be up to this regulator to decide if that actually happened properly there. So beyond the legality of this, what do privacy advocates say about the sort of implications of an alignment like this? So the short answer is that it's not great. So whether it's legal or not, this is not the ideal way to respect patient privacy. Uh, According to one expert we spoke with, that's uh, Jennifer Miller at Yale, patients' data uh, are being shared without their knowledge or their specific consent. And they're the ones who end up facing risk here. By contrast, the potential benefits uh, are going to go to Google or the health system or potentially future patients. So the whole issue of patient privacy has attracted the attention of lawmakers from both parties. What is the situation in Congress right now, Rebecca? Yeah, so lawmakers in Congress on both sides of the aisle have uh, put forward privacy bills uh, involving patient data that would allow patients to opt out of data sharing or require companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, uh, so not healthcare providers, but uh, companies that are working with healthcare providers to get explicit consent to access and, and share information. So just a few weeks ago, we learned that Google was planning to pay $2.1 billion to acquire Fitbit, which is, of course, the maker of data collecting wristbands. Does the controversy and the backlash over Nightingale maybe put that deal in jeopardy? Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, just this week, Senator Mark Warner, he's a Democrat from Virginia, went on Squawk Box, that's the CNBC show. And in light of this news, he called for a careful look at this acquisition of Fitbit. Let's listen to him now. I think the Fitbit deal needs a high, high level of scrutiny if we're going to have Google take on, again, all this personal data. The large platform companies have not had a very good record of protecting the data or being transparent with consumers. And I still think, you know, again, I can't totally blame them because if Congress doesn't set rules of the road, asking them to self-regulate is frankly just not a, a viable option. Google isn't the only tech giant making inroads into collecting patient data. Uh, Is there something the likes of Amazon and Apple can learn from the negative reaction to this Ascension partnership? I think transparency is so important to get the public, as well as blue checkmark types, on your side. Other similar deals that we've seen, even one announced a few months ago between Google and the Mayo Clinic, didn't spark much of a reaction at all, in large part, I think, because they proactively announced it. And one thing that stands out here with the Ascension deal in particular is that the patient data involves patients' names. That's not usually the case with these sorts of deals. The data shared is usually at least nominally de-identified, though there are questions about whether that's even possible in 2019. So I think the expectations for trust and security and disclosure get higher and higher when a deal involves more sensitive data. So a new startup company has begun selling a genetic test that claims to let prospective parents undergoing in vitro fertilization select an embryo with a low risk for disease or a higher IQ. Picking a baby based on favorable genetic markers or weeding out those with less desirable DNA sounds a lot like eugenics. And that's why this new test called LifeView has some genetic researchers and IVF experts sounding alarms. Joining us to discuss the ramifications of this very Gattaca-like reproductive technology is Dr. David Sable. 
David is a former IVF doctor who now manages an investment fund that focuses on reproductive medicine. David, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you for having me. So for clarity's sake, we should mention that uh, David has no involvement in the Life you genetic test or the company behind it. But David, based on what you've read, can you explain to our listeners how it purports to work? Yeah, it's a curious test. The test is not looking for specific genetic mutations. It's not looking for what causes disease. It's looking at patterns of thousands of observations of specific points in your genome that seem to correlate with a higher or normal risk of developing disease later in life. So it's in terms of science, it's really kind of not prime time. It's kind of back to pattern recognition. I know it when I see it kind of stuff. So the test claims to grade embryos based on a risk assessment of 11 common diseases. That includes cancer, diabetes, heart disease. Perhaps most controversially, though, the test also assesses risk for low IQ and short stature. What could prospective parents who are undergoing IVF do with information offered by a genetic test like this? Well, what they're purporting to do, I guess the action that they want to have come out of this is that if you make a large number of embryos and you're choosing one at a time which to go back in to try to have a pregnancy, you're giving parents the opportunity to kind of control risks for the future for the child. Now, you mentioned specifically intelligence and short stature. And this is where I start running into problems with these tests is, you know, intelligence is based on IQ measurements. I don't think anyone really believes IQ is a terrifically precise way of defining intelligence. And so we're using very exacting methods to kind of sort out imprecisely defined characteristics. And that's not great healthcare. So according to a recent story in MIT Tech Review, there are some people in the reproductive medicine community who are calling the test 23andMe, but on embryos. And it's also being pitched to fertility doctors with the slogan, she has your partner's ears and smile, just not their risk of diabetes. Is that appropriate or, or responsible? Well, it's, uh, I'll let people in marketing determine what's appropriate and responsible. It's not good health care. The article you're discussing, I think, was Antonio Regalado's article recently, which is excellent. He shows a uh, risk panel for a specific embryo that claims to have a four times higher risk for type 1 diabetes. That risk is still only four in a thousand, so it's still very tiny. Right underneath it is a risk for type 2 diabetes, which they purport to show with very specific percentages. Now, the risk for type 2 diabetes is much, much more related to environmental and uh, lifestyle factors than the genetics of your embryo. Again, these are observations with only very limited applicability to the real world. So for the doctors, nurses, scientists, embryologists, and genetic counselors on the ground seeing these patients, they have to undo a lot of these impressions that the advertising is giving. You know, it's, it's far from the type of precision that they're implying by saying things like, oh, you're not going to have the risk for diabetes that your parents do. You know, we are all walking science experiments. You know, the concept that embryos are normal or abnormal or even worse, that there is a quote-unquote perfect embryo in the group you're looking at is, is so false. And, uh, you know, there's a hubris behind this that really is counterproductive to delivering good health care. 
So, David, we spoke to you on the podcast last year uh, about new trends in reproductive medicine. And during that interview, you told us you were a big proponent of an IVF procedure called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And for listeners who aren't familiar, that's a procedure used to identify genetic defects in embryos in order to prevent diseases like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. So, David, what is the difference between pre-implantation genetic diagnoses that you favor and the life you test that we've been talking about here? It's a great question. It's really, it's precision medicine versus kind of shotgun, uh, you know, data analysis. When we biopsy an embryo and check it for cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia or spinal muscular atrophy, we are with 100% certainty removing the risk that a couple that's at risk for having a baby with one of those diseases is going to have a baby with that disease. So if, God forbid, a couple had a toddler die at age three from SMA, and they can undergo IVF, we can biopsy the embryos, we can identify with certainty which embryos carry that disease and which ones are normal and just choose to put back a normal embryo. So this is precise. We have a very specific goal in mind, which is to prevent a horrible disease. So the PGD for specific well-defined diseases is incredibly valuable. When we kind of like say, okay, let's do thousands and thousands of observations of these embryos and kind of, you know, in an impressionistic painting kind of way, get a feel for what may be a slight change in risk profile for later in life. It's a, it's a very different type of thing. And, uh, Unfortunately, to the world, these things get lumped together. To practice reproductive medicine is to live amidst a battle royale. You've got the ethicists on one side telling you not to do anything innovative. You've got the futurists on the other telling you to seize the reins and control every aspect of reproduction. And you've got the clinicians in the middle and the scientists and the genetic counselors trying to steer their patients through. So fertility clinics don't appear to be embracing the life view test. That's according to the same MIT tech review story we had alluded to earlier. And the company behind the test acknowledges that there are still relatively few, if any, embryos being implanted based on this kind of genetic report card. But how likely is that to change? Do you think there is an inevitability to these kinds of genetic tests where outrage might turn to acceptance? Well, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. This is really where the responsibility lies on the doctor's shoulders. You know, back when I was practicing, my patients would rely on me to translate all of the noise, the marketing noise, what they hear from other patients uh, online, and really say, okay, for your particular case, what are the benefits and the risks of doing this? Not to mention, is it worth the cost of the test? This is, these are not inexpensive tests, according to the, uh, the articles. So, you know, really, that's our job as doctors to you know, guide our patients through all this. Now, there are specific cases where, you know, maybe due to a family history of a disease where you really may want this information, where it could be helpful and it's a, um, you know, will benefit. But in general, it just it hasn't passed what we call the so what test. You get all these data points, you put them in front of us, and we as doctors and patients together say, okay, what do we do with this information? If it's not actionable, if it's not going to tell us to do one thing versus the other, why do the test at all? Secondly, a lot of the data that these predictions are based upon are flawed. They're very biased samples. They're not representative of the population at large. 
And, uh, you know, we don't want to order a test, pay for it, and then end up doing the wrong thing for what we think are the right reasons. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Hi, my name is Jorge Conde, and yes, I know what CAR-T cancer therapy is. So that was one of the biotech partners at the Silicon Valley venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Why it's relevant that he knows plenty about CAR-T is, well, a long and extremely online story, which is why we're here to explain it to you. So let's back up a couple of weeks ago. Jorge and his firm had just finalized an investment in the cancer immunotherapy company T-Immunity Therapeutics. And Jorge wanted to tell the world about it. So he tweeted out a thread that began as follows, quote, I recently saw one of the most moving pitches of my entire career, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. It's so rare to see things that actually cure things, end quote. And in the subsequent thread, Jorge told the familiar and moving story of Emily Whitehead. In 2012, Emily was a seven-year-old girl suffering from the advanced stages of leukemia when she became the first pediatric patient enrolled in a clinical trial for the CAR-T therapy that is now sold as Kimraya. Seven years later, Emily is cancer-free. Jorge also noted, with appropriate caution, that not everyone's experience with CAR-T therapy ends as well as Emily's. Jorge's thread was very sincere, but it did not go over so well on BioTwitter, which seemed to interpret Jorge's tweet as playing into the trope that Silicon Valley VCs are just playing in biotech without knowing anything. And that might arguably be the case for some Silicon Valley VCs, but it's certainly not the case for Jorge. So prior to moving out west to start work at Andreessen Horowitz in 2017, he had spent the past decade working in biotech in Boston, most recently as the chief strategy officer at Cirrus Pharmaceuticals. We wanted to understand why this very sincere tweet from a man who knows a thing or two about science sparked so much mockery. So we invited Jorge on the show to talk about it, and he was a good enough sport to agree. He joins us now. Jorge, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. So Jimmy Kimmel does a thing on his show where he asks celebrities to read mean tweets about them. Jorge, we want to ask you to do the same thing, but for BioTwitter. So here's the first one from the anonymous biotech investor who goes by the name Andy Biotech on Twitter. When a tech VC wakes up from a six-year coma and learns about CAR-T in 2019. Ouch. <laughs> and so here's one more from Bruce Booth, who is the uh, Boston-based Atlas Venture venture capitalist, who we should also note has been the author of a few very earnest VC-type tweets himself. Uh, Jorge, can you please read Bruce's tweet for us? We've been pitched a new interweb platform that allows people to share pictures with friends and classmates and think about the potential ad revenue, especially for political ads. I get excited and emotional just thinking about how this platform could change the world. And then there's a smiley face emoticon, which tells you that he's joking. Man, that's like an extra level of snark from Bruce Booth. So, so Jorge, why do you think your Twitter thread got so dunked on? For me, this has a very strong, you know, stay in your lane whiff to it. Uh, the old guard is uh, basically saying like, hey, this is our territory and us coming into this space, either it feels threatening to them or uh, just something that feels uncomfortable for them. And so, look, I take all of this in good fun. But, you know, this is the only industry I've ever worked in. I've worked in biotech and genomics and healthcare my entire career. And my view on this is, you know, I'm not looking for the old guard's blessing to do and uh, support companies and invest companies in the space. And I'm certainly not asking for their permission. And so, you know, I think this is one of those things where the reality is there's things that the old guard does that are probably not going to be of interest uh, to us. There are things that we do that clearly aren't going to be of interest to them. 
And then there's going to be the, the subset of things that are interesting to both us and them. And I think the question there is going to be, you know, are, are there opportunities to work together on those things or those things will just uh, compete over? And, you know, that story remains to be uh, to be told. So when we were kind of talking about this weird Twitter phenomenon earlier, I was wondering if maybe part of the issue was something lost in translation when it comes to audiences. So if I'm, you know, as you mentioned, the old guard, but if I'm like sort of a biotech lifer and I see, you know, what I perceive as like a a tech VC tweeting about CAR-T, then, you know, it might be funny and play into this air of superiority or, or whatever. But I was curious, you know, when you're writing a tweet like that or that thread, are you thinking about how, you know, the audience for it might be people who follow you because they know what Anderson Horowitz is, not necessarily because they know anything about biotech. Yeah, I think, you know, if you read through that thread and the accompanying uh, blog post that we wrote around the investment, and clearly the audience there is to explain and give context and ultimately educate people that may not be as deeply steeped in the space as others. So this is, you know, written uh, for a general audience. And that was the intent of uh, of what we write or what I wrote um, in that particular case. Now, of course, the world contains much more than can be found within the confines of bio Twitter, as you point out. Did your other Twitter followers, so folks who are not in, in this sort of old biotech guard, respond differently to your Twitter thread? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's safe to assume that there are many, many people that have not heard uh, this story before. And I think that, you know, a lot of the responses and reactions that I received to the thread and to the blog post were very positive uh, because, you know, it's new to them. So, Jorge, I wonder what you think this whole episode says, not only just about bio Twitter and kind of what the reaction was, but also maybe a little bit about like the East Coast versus West Coast divide, if there is a divide in terms of biotech, you know, you've worked on both coasts. So, I mean, does this say something about how each kind of side views biotech? You know, I think that a lot of the traditional biotech old guard uh, likes to criticize Silicon Valley by saying, well, they don't know anything about biotech. I mean, the, the Silicon Valley can't do biotech, which I think conveniently ignores the fact that, you know, <laughs> some of the first biotech companies came out of uh, the Silicon Valley area. And so I, I think that there is, you know, a, a rivalry. It's some of it's a difference of perspective. And I think some of it's just, you know, good old fun rivalry for rivalry's sake. You know, my partners, my team, this is certainly not something we're playing at. And our view is that there is a next generation of bio company that's emerging. And some of those are going to come from Boston. Some of those are going to come from Silicon Valley. So I personally think it's silly to delineate who can do what based on their zip code. That's not our philosophy from an investment standpoint. And that's certainly not our worldview in terms of where we think future innovations are going to come from. So now that we've subjected you to all of this talk about the ephemera of Twitter, we can talk about the actual substance of your tweet. Can you tell us a little bit more about Anderson Horowitz's investment in Team Unity and why you're so excited about what the company's up to? Uh, Sure. I'm happy to do that. So as we've talked about, about a little bit already, Team Unity is a company that is seeking to develop next generation CAR-Ts for a broad range of cancers, um, especially solid tumors, which has been something that's uh, historically been out of reach for, um, for these engineered T-cells. And the reason why we were particularly excited really is on, on three fronts. The first one is, you know, as we all know, biotech is hard. And so the team matters. Uh, and this is the team from the scientific standpoint did a lot of the work in helping discover and advance CAR-T in the first place, Carl, Carl June and Bruce Levine at the University of Pennsylvania, among others, um, but also uh, includes the team from Novartis. Um, the CEO, Oz Azam, was the former head of the gene and cell therapies unit at Novartis, which gave us the first uh, approved CAR-T therapy, Kim Raya. And so, you know, 
bringing that team together to essentially build on the foundations of the first generation of CAR-T therapy to expand its potential across the you know other 90% plus of cancers that aren't uh, leukemias and lymphomas and other liquid tumors, uh, I think is incredibly promising and, and, and frankly, it has an incredible need. Um, but I think not only the team matters, the technology matters as well. So one of the things that we are particularly interested in um, at the firm when we look at therapeutics companies are companies that are based on platforms that have a critical engineering and or technology component to them. Um, and then the third piece that I would say is, you know, promise and potential matter, but so does progress. And, you know, this is a company that has already three programs in clinical trials and clinical development across a broad range of cancers, both in the liquid and solid tumor space. So for all of those reasons, um, we were incredibly excited and, and thrilled to to lead the latest investment in the company and are very excited for the future of what they can do and hopefully what that means for patients. So last question for you, Jorge. Are you going to tweet any differently in the future in response to the way your Twitter thread was received? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not going to change how I tweet and, and I can't control how people react to that. Jorge, thanks for coming on the podcast and keep on tweeting. Thank you all. Thanks for having me. does it for another episode of the read out loud before we go a quick programming note next week's podcast will come out on friday november 22nd not the usual thursday because of the stat summit that's the big healthcare conference that stat is hosting in cambridge mass next week so stay tuned for a segment about the most interesting things we heard at the summit in the meantime, thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Please tell us what you liked about this episode, what you didn't like, and what you make of BioTwitter. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. We'll be right